0: Um, we've spoken about people not remembering things properly mm-hmm. before, and I totally understand that I am someone... My memory is horrible. My sister hates talking to me about our childhood because I'm like, that didn't happen. She's like, that that definitely happened. <laughs> Vice versa. <laughs> Those are but, called repressed memories. <laughs> <they're>, exactly. <laughs> I... I'm losing my mind, though, listening to uh, number one daytime radio show, The Hang Zone, as they're recounting their memory of 9 When Jake said, as it was happening, it was between first and second period, is he telling me that his school started at 5.30 a.m.?
1: No. No, it, plane- that's when it happened, like... I was I watching not. I was watching the today show getting ready for my first period cla- history class in college which started at 8:50 and the first tower had already been hit and then we saw the second one hit right before we walked out of the apartment to go to class
0: Okay so yeah that makes sense but 8:50 the Second tower was hit at 9.03 a.m. Eastern time? S- eastern time. Yeah. So you're saying you were leaving at 7.03 a.m. when you saw the second tower hit? No, no. It's only one
1: hour difference to central time. So if it's 9.03 eastern, okay. it's 8.03
2: we're central. we're scrapping this
0: whole open. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what's never ending? So find the beginning that can- We saw the second one hit. I remember sitting there on the couch and going to my roommate who was still asleep because he worked nights and I knocked on his door and woke him up and told him he needed to come out and watch it. Uh And that's when we saw the second plane hit and we watched for like another 15 minutes or something like that. And then I left to walk because the walk from my apartment to the other side of campus took me like 30 minutes.
0: Okay, I forgot it was one hour difference. I haven't lived in Texas in forever. <laughs>
1: the, you, you're just a coastal elite thinking we're just some flyover.
0: <laughs> yep, that's Fly exactly Flyover
1: time zone that doesn't count. <laughs>
0: uh, but the other thing... Okay, you got to tell me because I was in fifth grade. Uh, so I don't, again, totally remember everything that happened... But did the US do anything that day? Like, did they have any military action? Like, bomb
1: anybody? No, they didn't bomb anybody, but they had, they scrambled the jets over like every uh, major airport in every major city in America. And um, like, they were ready to blow up Flight 93 out of the sky. Um, And uh, there were definitely the only planes that were flying over Dallas were like F-16s and F-15s, like flying overhead, just like on patrol.
0: (laughs) I remember hearing jets because there was the elementary school I went to was near a private airport and somebody was flying their little plane around. And so we had jets fly overhead because they were, you know oh, this little plane's going to crash into Ryan Elementary School. (laughs) Um, But the thing that I also, I swear, uh, I went home and watched Animaniacs. (laughs) (laughs) But Blake was saying that Nickelodeon wasn't showing anything except news, which cannot be true.
1: Nickelodeon news? I don't know. I wasn't watching Nickelodeon as a... As a <laughs> as a sophomore in college at that time, but, <laughs> but
0: Animaniacs,
1: I mean, and, but Animaniacs came on on uh, WB thirty three. They they showed it on Nickelodeon. They did okay. Pretty I thought sure. it was just uh, it was just like on local uh, local TV for the after school kids um, nah, you're with Pinky in the Brain and Freakazoid and
0: those were definitely on Nickelodeon too. I think <clears throat> pretty sure.
1: Yeah, I don't know what Nick. I don't know what property Nickelodeon was at that time, because uh, they've since become a huge conglomerate, so I don't know what news they would have been running. Like, were they uh, Viacom, well, what, or...
0: What else would they be doing? Like, dead air? That can't...
1: Right. Yeah, and, like, I remember just every... Like, we were poor in college, so we didn't have, like, cable. <laughs> so... Mm-hmm. uh it was just, like, scrolling through the local channels, and all the local channels weren't running any local stuff. They were just all carrying the national news feeds.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. So I remember there not being, like, Channel 8 News wasn't carrying their own independent local Dallas news coverage. They were carrying big ABCs, you know, mm. yeah, Good yeah. Morning America, and uh, whatever coverage. Diane remember- Sawyer...
0: Uh, I did go over to a friend's house, and uh, I remember my dad being pissed that I wasn't going to football practice. <laughs> big, big military guy is like, "No, you, you, you're showing that you're weak by not going and uh, playing your second year of tackle football."
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's weird because that was September twelfth was the first day of baseball at UTD. So not not the first day of that season, but the first day that baseball as an organized sport had been part of the college at all. Um, so September 12th, 2001 was the inauguration day of baseball at D2 UTD. Are you and trying
0: to draw some causation here?
1: They uh, So we all showed up to the field. There was like four scholarship transfer kids but everyone else was like uh a walk-on that the coach had talked to at the school being like hey you played baseball in high school would you like to come play for the team and so we all showed up uh because you know we had no idea we had nothing else to do like classes were shut down um so we showed up to the fields behind the university and uh the coach just showed up with a truck full of stuff, and it was just boxes of, like, the batting cage equipment and the pitching machine and the 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 roll-on, roll-off backstop and, like, L-screens for the pitchers and stuff like that. But they were all in boxes, so we just spent all day just building those things. And no one said a word to each other. Like, 40 guys... All brand new baseball team, all showing up to like be a new team together and like, man, this is cool. We're all meeting each other. We're gonna start baseball on this campus. Not one word was spoken amongst the group of everyone there. We just looked at the instructions of those things and put them together in silence and then left after it was all done.
0: That's not fun.
1: <laughs> I no one knew what to say. <laughs> like no one knew what to do, like how how to process it. Cause like in the back of all of our minds, we're all like eighteen and nineteen years old. Like all, in, at least in mine, like all I'm thinking of is there's about to be a draft.
3: I'm gonna yeah, be yeah. fucking
1: drafted. This is so, <laughs> this is so stupid that I'm about to be fucking drafted. <laughs> That's all I <laughs> was Baseball thinking. Baseball just about. started. <laughs> exactly. I'm finally gonna get an opportunity to play college ball, and I'm about to get fucking drafted. <laughs>
0: That is, uh, I do remember the draft conversation happening probably more when I was in middle school, you know, getting, getting up there in age. Yeah. But it it's such a, my family is such a weird group of people because they are like so pro military, but. So, my mom was like, We're, I'm taking you to Canada if they do the draft, blah, blah, blah. Like, it, <laughs> They're going to
1: draft a bunch of 11-, 12-, and 13-year-olds. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah. she's At least she had the foresight uh, to see that this war was going to go on forever. Right, right. She
1: knew. She knew ahead of time. We, but it's going to be going on in a decade, <laughs> I'm sure.
0: <laughs> I, I can't remember. I was laying in bed last night trying to think of what to say and uh, for this Open and, you know, seriously screwing it up upon delivery but <laughs> i i don't know why but it popped into my head thinking about the draft there there was a video game that came out uh there was like a vietnam you know video game at at some point i can't remember. i was probably in high school probably ps2 I i don't know anyways uh my stepdad was born in 53 so he was you know, he did get like a draft card right at the end of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And he ended up not getting drafted, but he knew people that got drafted. And again, my family, extremely pro military. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I thought I wasn't trying to be rude. <laughs> of course, they thought I was. Uh, But I thought, hey, Bill, uh, now you can play this game. And Pretend that you were drafted. <laughs> 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 that was not the right thing to say. <laughs> uh, oh man! So, yeah, I guess people. I don't know. Did you get growing up?
1: Did you get your ahead. Selective Service card when you turned eighteen in high school? Do you remember that? Getting I it don't in the remember mail. Getting
0: a card, but I got. I mean, I turned eighteen in two thousand eight during the election, so. It was just, you know, when you're registering to vote, mm-hmm. that's a, you know, register for the draft. So, I remember doing that. I don't remember getting a card in the mail, um, but we I'm had, sure we I got had, something.
1: We had all gotten ours as seniors in high school. So, it had only been, like, 15 months since we had mm-hmm. all gotten our selective service cards, you know, as 18-year-olds. Yeah. And... Uh, So there was a big thing on campus that we're all going to burn these. (laughs) Then they won't be able to draft us. (laughs) Yeah, they they don't have (laughs) backups. It's all just tied to this card that I keep in my wallet. And if this doesn't exist anymore, ha ha, fools and the government will never be able to find me. (laughs) As everything in my entire college campus is like cross associated with my social security number.
0: (laughs) Right, right. You can burn that too, though. Yeah, right. Yeah, they'll never figure it out. I, I definitely was probably pro military. Um, you know, again, as I've said, listened to my parents for quite a while. Probably early college was when I started being like, "Wait a minute, <laughs> yeah, this is this is not not good." But uh, if I had been drafted at eighteen, I probably would have been. Probably would have just been like, No, I'm going to college and then what are they gonna do? You know? There's certain people that they allowed to like go to college. <laughs> so <laughs> surely. But I couldn't imagine after five years them being like, Okay, now we're doing the draft. Now I'm going in as an officer. Mm-hmm. That was certainly
1: I'll just stay what in I school, thought. and I'll go in as an officer. If I enlist, maybe I'll get preferential treatment. They're not just going to throw me in the infantry. <laughs> maybe, maybe the maybe the play here is to act like I'm really gung-ho about it, enlist, try to get that sweet officer desk job.
0: <laughs> yeah, which is funny because my my dad, being super pro, uh, I'm a Marine, blah, blah, blah. Um, he's more a psychopath, but he uh, was like... A desk, like he was a lawyer, like assistant in the Marine Corps. He was like, "Oh yeah, I, I was an officer and did artillery," but he he sat at a desk the whole time. He was also in the military during like the one of the periods of relative peace in
1: the world. <laughs> we only had to worry about the Berlin Wall back then.
0: Right. It was pretty funny because he, you know, they brainwash you especially in the Marine Corps, to believe that uh, you should die honorably. And he was so, I mean, he still is ready to kill somebody. He's, it's insane. Uh, But I was always in the back of my head, like, they went into the Gulf War, like, right before you got out. Why didn't you just stay in if you really, well, I'd already done the paperwork. And, and
1: Schwarzkopf was going to have that thing over
0: in like one week anyway, you know, just exactly. big ground
1: assault with all them tanks. Like there wasn't even going to be really a fight.
0: Yeah. It's funny because the, he being that watching boyhood, he, he was the dad at different points in that mm-hmm. movie. Um, I certainly remember so it was pro military pro Bush first election, very hardcore, was it Gore or Carrie? I can't remember. Carrie, right?
1: Carrie was the second one. Bush Gore was was 2000.
0: Right, okay. So he was very pro-Carrie, like carried signs in his car and would like put them in people's lawns. And like, <laughs> we did that scene <laughs> from Boyhood. <laughs> I remember sitting, because divorced Dad, Bowling Alley is like number two right after Chili's. Uh, for places to take the kids, and I remember sitting in a bowling alley as he's telling us how Bush is a war criminal. Like it's just <laughs> that movie's insane. Uh, but you know, housed housed Democratic uh, campaigners during Obama, and is now like QAnon. So he's, yeah, he's well, one of those back and forth.
1: It's it's an interesting time because my period that was it was all. The beginning of my college experience so like the fall of 2000 was bush gore hanging chads huge constitutional crisis i was in my history of vietnam class taught by professor rabe who was the um adjunct professor of all history because i was a history major at the time and he like stopped our entire syllabus when the election went down, and we did like two weeks just on outrage over Bush stealing the election from Al Gore. Mm-hmm. Fast forward September eleventh. I'm headed to my u s <clears throat> American women's history class taught by Professor Rabe <laughs> and Who? Professor same- Rabe, same professor, same oh, okay. history curriculum. and we're in we go in the class the morning of September eleventh and we're like, Asking, should we be here? We just saw the other the other thing went down. And like by the time like a couple stragg- stragglers walked into class late because they've been watching the footage and they're telling us right when they walk in, just interrupting the lecture, like that one of the towers just collapsed, you know? And we're like, What the fuck? Mm-hmm. And um so and he's like, No, we're not stopping class. Like <laughs> at that that morning, he was in the we're not letting the terrorist win
0: like mode. Oh great.
1: And, but he was also referencing back to less than 13 months pre previous during the whole Bush Gore hanging Chad incident, basically being like, and this is what I was so afraid of (laughs) back in November of last year. It should have been Al Gore, you know? So, but just that all that stuff happened in like, I don't know. They seem like two very disparate, separate events, like, Mm -hmm. but they were so close together in my life. And just to think that, Our experience of it, ours, just experiencing those things as, like, singular moments rather than us understanding that this was a beginning of the next, you know, 20 years of shit that was going to happen, like just those what we've talked about before being the frog and the slowly boiling pot of water like you don't realize the things that are happening in the moment that they're happening they might cause you an initial traumatic response in that time but for you to have the context and the comprehension of everything that's going to happen in the future based upon these few events it's really tough to have any type of perspective when the world is like seemingly crumbling around you at a Mm -hmm. gradual rate
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's one of those things that you can certainly look back upon i mean even the bush v gore uh aspect of things i don't quite remember that uh you know i was fourth grade probably right um so i don't remember that being that you know huge of a news story uh my memory's bad anyways but you don't have the you have the context initially of like this is really screwed up then you can finally pan back and be like oh uh Scalia is a big part of this decision and he's on the Supreme Court because Dick Cheney in the 70s helped promote his career because he was somebody who came up with like the you know essentially how the vice president can or the president nothing the president does is illegal right right the, they're the, the president <laughs> yeah um, can't break the law if i make the law <laughs> so which was used by i believe nixon i mean this is you know yeah. and Rumsfeld groomed cheney so it's just it's very... been kind of
1: used by all the presidents since in different ways. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Obama and the drone war. Like, <laughs> yeah. At least it's been used lots of ways. Bush and the crack epidemic. Like, it, it's been used these unilateral powers of the presidency have been used in many ways. Up up yeah. to Trump trying to, you know, kill Mike Pence. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but uh it's it's interesting because the I think the our topic being depression is sort of a weird one when it when we spiral it in with 9-11 because I don't know. I feel like people view it in a weird way that because it happened to nearly well, it didn't happen to everybody in the country, but everyone feels like they have a personal mm-hmm. tie to it in one way so you can have a very jaded view of other people who do experience it in a traumatic sort of way like you know it's it's weird because it it definitely caused trauma in some people well and um, i think
1: the traumatic experience was shared and amplified because of the time when it happened with the with you having you know basically five major news outlets being broadcast on every station on repeat for weeks. Yeah. Um even if you were 2000 miles away from ground zero when it happened,
0: two time zones.
1: Yeah, you are having the same visceral traumatic experience, the same stress-inducing anxiety, the same amygdala response, the same lizard brain part of you freaking out because you can't regulate your emotion, like, all of those things are going on, and because of our, the nature of human beings, like, we kept watching it over and over and over and over again, like, for not just those few weeks after, but for years after, and every September 11th, we had another month-long you know, deluge of all the footage again and all of the thing just, I I think that has a lot to do with tricking the brain into thinking that you had the direct experience of being there, even if you weren't, even if you never breathed in one speck of dust from the collapsing tower, the trauma that happened on your mind and how you were able to empathize with those human faces covered, you know, with dust and ash, that is permanently imprinted in a way that makes it incredibly real to you. And there's no, I don't think, psychological difference in a lot of people's reaction to that experience, whether they were actually there or on in California when it happened.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, it's a it's definitely a weird one. I think the maybe maybe the issue also comes up with people don't like other people's uh perspectives on it, thinking that uh some war is justified or whatever. Mm-hmm. This year especially uh on Twitter was huge with everybody saying how disgusting <laughs> like uh, uh Howard Stern's reaction was to it. Which I had never heard before. Still haven't heard uh, because I can just imagine having grown up in Texas. <laughs> exactly what he was saying, right? But it's you know, it, it's a weird, a weird one how people kind of process these stressful events. And I don't know, I don't know exactly how to spin this into <laughs> depression.
1: <laughs> well, I think the 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 broad overreaching thing about depression from you know, the research to sort of simplify and give us a comprehensive overview of the research. One is that depression is somewhat ubiquitous. Like it's Mm. not just a human thing. It's so, it's not just like a, oh man, uh, you grew up in a tough situation or your mom died when you were a kid. So you're predisposed to depression. It's, it's prevalent, in other mammals it's definitely measured in primates it's measured in they did a study in Norway of the fish in the stock ponds you know that they have like stock fish farms to feed the people and like a quarter of the fish Grow undersized because they have anxiety and depression from being in that environment rather than being in a wild environment where they can move all around when they're all close, you know, in this much more scatterbrained environment and everyone's in a tight pond running into each other, their fight or flight response is being triggered all the time, whether or not oh, is this danger? Am I supposed to follow these guys? Oh, wait, is this my group? Am I supposed to follow these guys? I don't know what to do. Um, And then that causes depression. They don't eat. They don't... Any type of sleep regimen that they have is completely interrupted. Um, So this is in fish. Not only that, there's huge depression analogs with fruit flies. (laughs) And you can see the direct, like, uh, effects when you trigger on and off the the levels of serotonin that are released in their very you know small brains like you can get depressed fruit flies you can get depressed cockroaches uh so similarly like we talked about last week how people didn't even know that non-human things slept in the 1970s like Mm -hmm. there's been a lot of things that have happened in the last 20 years where we're like oh Maybe we shouldn't be so myopic about this depression thing because, look, it's kind of everywhere. Everything yeah. gets it. Everybody, go. everything's going through it. Um, so that's sort of the big overlay. The question is, if depression is something that's affecting, by measured statistics, about 20% of the population, um, is that... A smoking gun for there being a singular cause. Like, is there some genetic trait that if we figured it out, we could flip that switch and end depression in in all things? Is there something? Is there what is the one biological thing that we can trace it back to, either through evolutionary means or, or through research and pinpoint that smoking gun? and put it out so that that will will fix everything and that's what most of the studies of depression have been since the 90s has been trying to figure out is there a way to solve this from a medical biological perspective and if so what is that Um, the major issue has been in the last 30 years um, we found lots of ways to treat the symptoms of depression We found a lot of correlations between different types of things going on in the brain, different types of things going on in the environment, different types of things going on with behavior. Um, But if anything, we found that depression might be a thing that we, a, a singular name that we put on an observation that we have of behavior. And it might, depression might actually be made up of you know, 20 or 30 different disorders that all sort of manifest in the same way. And this sort of resonated with me because with my retinitis pigmenti- pigmentosa diagnosis, it's genetic. I, I have a, It's a genetic uh, deficiency that I have that causes me not to be able to reproduce rod and cone photoreceptor cells in my eyes. However, in the last 20 years of doing the genetic research of trying to find the gene that has the mutation, and maybe you can, like... CRISPR that gene. You could, uh, you could correct for that one flaw and then turn the lights back on. They found that it's actually hundreds of genes that have the possibility to become mutated and cause this disorder. So it's mm-hmm. not like there's one special gene that causes your rod and cone cells to no longer, no longer re- replicate. It could be lots of different ones with lots of different gene markers on those different genes. So, the idea of finding like some sort of one-to-one relationship for the cure for my genetic disorder is out the window. It's going to be very specialized for every individual who has it, and I think that's where depression is as well. And and as you when you research a lot about how medicine tries to f- locate genetic disorders and the research of gene therapy and stuff like that the ones that medicine really focuses on the research are the types of gene relationships to disorders that are one-to-one relationships like sickle cell Um, like that is a one-to-one one one gene causes this one disorder we fix that gene we fix that disorder Um, when it comes to these other things that could have hundreds of different genes that cause these effects, Uh, having a gene therapy approach to uh, remediating those problems is not nearly uh, as sufficient and doesn't have really any efficacy.
0: Yeah. When I was working in the research lab, I was in the cell and gene therapy department, and it's, it's so difficult to do those sorts of studies when you're looking at something that could be controlled by tons of genes because the way that you do it is you essentially have to have like a mouse colony that has been specifically created and bred to have one of the genes you're looking at knocked out or tied to something you can actually measure some of these are like they you know, can sometimes tie these to fur color, so you know mm. with a pretty good certainty that the black mice are uh, ones that have the proper normal gene, and then the white mice are the ones that had it knocked out, but you typically have to raise a mouse colony, go in, get a DNA sample, which is usually like a some tail cells, and run through the entire process of breaking those down and stripping the dna out and cutting it up specifically to run it through a gel so you can see what lines and blah 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 and marking which mouse and everything like that then you run your study with whatever you're looking at we were looking at bone growth in muscle tissue and how nerves were related to that you have to run your study where you're like injecting the half the mice that you want to look at with a certain thing and then not injecting the other half of the mice or just giving them saline placebo injection right and run it through uh, kill all the mice and then take tissue samples then you just stain the tissue samples you have to like cut through frozen muscle tissue and find an exact location where there was bone growth or whatever, then you just stain it for a specific protein and then see if that glows through a microscope. And this is where modern medicine is (laughs) when looking at this stuff. it is That's essentially it. There's other techniques where you use a computer, essentially, that has lasers to look at those cell markers, Mm -hmm. but you're just seeing if certain receptors are there or not. And what's interesting with trying to figure out gene therapy there versus, you know, keeping things alive, it's, there's so many factors to it outside of genetics too. Uh, Depression is a prime example of it being incredibly complex to figure out what's going on Mm -hmm. because you're, you know, in a mouse or a rat, you're needing to... Find a way to give them depression to see how they react to different things. And there's pretty, like with sleep, there's signs in a rat on what a depressed rat is like. But improving those things, it's like, okay, well, are they depressed because of this one thing that you found you can improve? But how do you know your study wasn't just knocking out that one thing so then you just gave it back? Yeah. Like, it's... it's so much more than a one-to-one relationship especially when it comes to these sort of this this combination of science of psychology and biology and then when you get to the competition between those fields it all gets real muddy. Yeah,
1: instead of working together, a lot uh, there's there's a lot of no, it's only going to be this way or no, it's only going to be this way. It it mm-hmm. couldn't possibly be like maybe if we just joined forces. <laughs>
0: right. And it's it's weird cuz like the you know, as you're saying it measured could be in 20% of the population um they used to think it was in you know fifteen percent of people will have at least one major depressive episode. Um, the Who predicted that it would be the number two cause of disability by twenty twenty five. I couldn't find current numbers on it. It is um, up there.
1: D- depression and anxiety are are the top. I think behind diabetes, diabetes and, and obesity related. Yeah, obesity related stuff. It's like it's right there. Um, like, my, my disability through Social Security is for my blindness, but, you know, I didn't have to list out all my depression stuff because my blindness <laughs> sufficed. <laughs> that was yeah. good enough for them. They were like, okay, we, we need to, we need some extra supporting documentation that shows that you're really bad off. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's definitely on there. Um, and I, I think that's the, the next place to go is understanding that, we have this is what was so good in um Sapolsky's uh the the Stanford um uh lecture lecture that we that we watched um but just basically the way that he introduced it that we have a problem in America and it's a semantics problem yeah and the fact that You know, if something doesn't go our way or we have a particularly stressful day at work or, you know, your girlfriend dumps you, we all colloquially describe that as we're depressed or, man, that's depressing. Or someone tells you, you know, some bad news about uh, uh, over text and you reply, oh, man, I'm so sorry. That's that's depressing. Like we use that term so frivolously that we don't appreciate what true major depression is. Um, And like a major depressive episode is something at which you basically become deregulated from the cycle at which you can mourn the loss of a loved one, mourn the loss of something that you loved, like your job, mourn the loss of... Maybe maybe you had to retire early and you really loved working, but circumstances forced you to retire. Mourning the loss of something, you have we all do that. And most of us have a cycle at which we reach a point where we gain perspective from that loss. And we have this really interesting thing as humans where in the worst of circumstances, we kind of are, especially when things get really bad we are falsely optimistic to ourselves as like a coping mechanism. So that helps us rebound out of these, you know, depths of despair. But like major depression is such that you go into the depths and you're down for so long that you can no longer regulate when the up comes. And at at a certain point of being majorly depressed for a for long enough time and having enough neurotransmitter chemicals suppressed in your brain and never getting a good balance whether that be through serotonin or norepinephrine or dopamine um you lose the ability to know when you're going to go up or to control when you go down and kind of that just happens it doesn't even take like a a a very disturbing event or traumatic event or stressful event in your life to all of a sudden trigger a major depressive episode. And mm-hmm. it also doesn't take, like, a major euphoric event or a major, like, congratulatory moment to give you, like, oh, man, this is a, this is the best day I've ever had type of feeling either. Or you you might just wake up to- and you yeah, might have Marvel. this, like, super rush of endorphins.
0: Go ahead. Yeah. I th- Well, it's just the... The down can be so long and so cognitively distorted that you, th- it, the way it's so weird the way it works, or maybe we can just play his clip because he describes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, Good time to play the clip. You clipped it, Eric.
3: If I had to define major depression in one sentence, I would say it's a biochemical disorder with a genetic component and early experience influences where somebody can't appreciate sunsets. And that's what this disease is about. And when you think about it, That is a very sad thing. You look at some of our major diseases, somebody with cancer, somebody crippled by heart disease, and you see the most unlikely things out there. You see somebody saying, well, obviously, I'm not glad I'm dying of cancer, but without this disease, I never would have realized the importance of friends. I never would have reconciled with my family members. I never would have found my god on a completely weird level. I'm almost glad this has happened to me humans have this astonishing capacity to derive pleasure out of the most unlikely domains what could possibly be worse than a disease whose defining symptom is the inability to feel pleasure
0: yeah and i think the while he does mention the defining characteristic is anhedonia the ability to not uh feel like a hedonistic, you know, pursuit of pleasure. Yeah, it, things um, that are
1: supposed to give you pleasure don't give you the buzz anymore. Like the that 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 kiss with a that first kiss with a new girlfriend just doesn't it doesn't do anything. Like nothing. You might as well have shot yourself in the foot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's something that, um, uh, and you know, I've I've myself have never been uh, diagnosed as depressed, but. Uh, I can say at the very least that I have had some (laughs) serious symptoms uh, that will probably run down. And so I feel uh, that I've experienced maybe not the, the major depression where it lasts for months, but it was certainly, well, probably months long when I was younger. And the thing is, it's not losing the ability to feel pleasure that sounds like you can't enjoy you know a roller coaster it means like like just having like food is is dull mm-hmm. like everything is so muted or horrible like on top of everything else that it's there's no like you know going and getting a fresh hot chalupa from Taco Bell is like you might as well have just eaten like the crumbs out of a chip bag or something mm-hmm. like it's not you know there's no interest in anything it's yeah. it's totally blank on what things feel like and that's that's the how good things can be yeah <laughs> things can continue to feel worse um if something bad happens on top of all of those things like actual physical pain like yeah. you're
1: you're you feel physical pain like you're being burned or you're being your arm is caught in a vice and it's not it it's such that when these people are put in an fMRI and they're feeling this pain the pain indicators in their brain that would light up if you were actually holding a lighter to their skin are lighting up. So Mm -hmm. it's not an imaginary pain. It's not, uh, that they're giving you an allegory for what their emotions feel like by saying, Oh man, I just, my whole body hurts. Their body actually hurts. (laughs) It's like a real, it's real pain. And, um, that's where we get to like the sort of, I, I want. I would like to. I really want to talk about the brain chemistry stuff, but I kind of want to talk about the structure of the brain part first.
0: <clears throat> okay. Well, let, go ahead. What about um, sort of like the the thing that I think is interesting too—that the the pain part you're talking about. Um, their brain is lighting up as if they were in physical pain, but as he sort of describes, and I think is a good way for somebody to imagine and you know somebody i'm not saying like imagining that most people listening although statistically um aren't depressives themselves but it's it's helpful even if you have experienced depression to hear what these things are Mm -hmm. the pain aspect of it your brain is doing the exact same pain messaging as if you were you had you know been as he says, like, gored by an elephant. Yeah. (laughs) But the thing is, your brain in that instance can connect the elephant tusk to all of these emotional pain things. Mm -hmm. The thing with depression is you don't have something, so it's almost all of the ambivalent, vague feelings of pain without something to point to Mm -hmm. so it is it is the exact same thing as being in physical pain but your body has nothing to point to so you're you have this inner turmoil in your head and entire body of not understanding why it's in pain but it's severe pain and i think that's like a great way to sort of look at depression, it's all of the ambivalent feelings of pain without having something to physically point to. Yeah,
1: you it and that the helplessness of not being able to say, "Oh, I get it. I just need to take my hand out of this vice," or <laughs> like not having that one-to-one relationship for problem-solving. Because, like we've talked about, the our brains are. Problem-solving evolutionary features like they've evolved to be these problem-solving things, which gets us in trouble a lot because oftentimes we uh, we're so quick to problem solve that we find the most convenient, intuitive answer to a problem rather than uh, looking at what maybe the real causes of the problem are and drilling down at what the what's really going on, and so we just go with that and we're like, oh, that makes sense. Um, but in this instance. There's like nothing. You feel the pain, but you can't do anything about it. You go to the doctor and the doctor like does surgery to see if you have like a hernia. And the doctor's like, well, there's no hernia. I, uh, we, we cut you open. There's nothing there. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. what to tell you. <laughs> and you're like, well, it feels like it. So can there's nothing we can do. And so then you go right. home and you feel like you're crazy And you've just spent a whole lot of money trying to, like, find some imaginary pain that you've been basically told is all in your head. And that Mm. makes it even worse (laughs) because you still wake up the next morning after the doctor told you that it's not there and you feel it. And you're like, well, isn't there, like, some level of my own uh, human willpower where I can just be like, stop it. Stop being such a dummy. Just quit. Stop feeling this pain. That's not there. You dummy. Just just be a normal person. Yeah. And that's really not how any of this works. Um, and that's I think the uh, sort of the biggest detriment to depression is that it doesn't have. It doesn't manifest as uh, all of a sudden you get like a bad skin rash, and so everyone can be like, oh, obviously major depressed (laughs) it's it's like you call your boss and you're like i cannot come in today i just can't get out of bed and they're like i got out of bed i get out of bed every day what's what what the fuck's your problem pussy you can't fucking just do do like do it like the rest of us what's what's your deal and so automatically the stigma is that there anyone who has depression has some sort of weak character, or weak morality, or weak-mindedness, or no willpower, or all of these things that we've talked about in depth in other episodes that are a lot of American mythology ideals. Um, and so that makes for a very combative and sort of caustic mix of people who are not willing to be empathetic or understanding about this condition because it actually is antithetical to like what we believe we're supposed to be as American individuals. Like, that's another big issue with this, is that this rugged individualism, self-made man, free will aspect of American life does not allow for uh, a mental disorder like depression to exist.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: but even going to psychologists doesn't which is insane to me like your whole profession (laughs) is uh built around mental health and well-being and like I went to a, a psychologist a few years ago and was finally like I had never explained to a psychologist or a psychiatrist or anyone, any sort of anxiety or depression symptoms. And I was like, finally, okay, I had like a huge issue. So I'm going to go and talk to somebody. <laughs> wrote down the whole thing, uh, started talking to them. And they're like, you know, we have a breathing exercise class that's once a week. I think that might be what you're looking for. <laughs> it's like, did you not read any of these? Like, you know, it was... It's insane that it's under misunderstood. It's under understood.
1: Yeah, and the and the treatment is such that because of there's not like a direct genetic smoking gun, and there's not like oh, this one pill fixes a hundred percent of people. Um, then any time that you're trying to treat a patient who presents with depressive like symptoms. You have to do it in this very, very graduated baby step type process. Like You have to sort of feel out, is this a major depressive episode? Is this a thing where I need to get this person on medication right away because their chemical imbalance is so bad that they literally are on the verge of hospitalization? Is it an episode where this person has just not ever talked about this their whole life and finally push came to shove and they need to talk about this because if they don't, something bad might happen later. Is it a situation where like this person is actually suicidal and we need to do something right now that medication will take too long to fix? So we need to intervene with a therapy that does something drastic and gives us immediate results. Um, And I think a lot of Especially when it comes to psychologists who do more of the sort of talk therapy and more of the approach of uh, of listening and even kind of on the verge of like life coaching type of stuff, they're going to do it, approach it very gradually. Like like you said, like breathing exercises, maybe. And we're going to take every tiniest bite of the apple until we find something that is effective for you. Instead of just dumping you into you know, other things. Now that's the, Mm -hmm. the reason why I go to a psychiatrist and not a psychologist is because, um, I have a genetic predisposition in my family for major depression and be, and manic depressiveness like is in my, is in my family. Um, so I know that there is a, and I've had a couple extremely major depressive episodes in my life and, Um, had, like, the real uh, scary suicidal time for a few months. Um, And I knew that brain chemistry was obviously an issue because I knew that I couldn't just, like, go play guitar or, you know, hang out outside with my friends and, like, get that boost that I needed to help me get over the hump or whatever. It just wasn't possible. And um, so I knew I needed medication, which is why I went to the psychiatrist route because they're like medical doctors that can actually prescribe medications. And when you go that route, you do like the fucking 700-question-long questionnaires about your mental health and everything. But then you do sort of a talk therapy with the psychiatrist as you're taking the medication. But the talk therapy isn't really about like oh, and tell me about your childhood with your parents and, you know, how did that affect you? The talk therapy is more about we took a snapshot of your outlook on the world day one. You started taking this medication. You came back in two weeks. We took a snapshot. I'm going to ask you questions that take a snapshot of your view of the world now. And then in six weeks after you've been on the medication, we'll take another snapshot. And then I'll increase your dose a little bit. And in two months, we'll take another snapshot. And so all the questions and sort of therapy is him asking me stuff that gives him an idea of the way that the uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitor is working in my brain and giving me a better perspective and better outlook and sort of balancing me back out. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a, at least in my experience, that has been, that was the reassurance that, I also needed sort of the uh, the emotional support side of everything that you need because you can't just give some people some pills and expect it to all go away. You need some sort of like, um, you know, comfort. You need a thing that tells you, okay, this is some positive feedback that shows you that this is actually working. And then you can start to believe it because when you're so depressed for so long, you really don't believe that there's any other, like there's any other state of being, which is why yeah. you get to like total suicide. Like every day I wake up and it's the same. Like the only way that I could maybe have a different outcome is to just swallow this shotgun. Like that would be a different that would be a different experience at least. At least mm-hmm. I wouldn't feel like this, and um, so that that is like the, the snapshot of my sort of experience, but having the psychiatrist angle and doing it through taking the SSRIs, um, really was sort of the, the combined package that I needed to help me get out of like this last one. And so I've been on Zoloft, I don't know now, six years, five years. And like in the past, they used to give you high doses of it and then get you off it real quick because they thought that it w- will just fix your brain chemistry and then now your brain is balanced out and it knows what to do and now you're off it. But in more recent years, they understand that this is a, not a thing that you can just quit. Like if you start on this, you have to keep doing it and you might be able to dose down you know, later in your treatment. Um, but even if you want to eventually get off it, it's going to take like a year of slowly, gradually dosing down to zero. And even then you'll probably have like what they call these lightning storms in your brain where you feel like you have these like electrical storms that happen like in the back of your head where, it's like uh, your natural serotonin coming online versus like the, the the stimulated by the Zoloft serotonin firing and it's like sort of the sputtering serotonin of it, can you naturally produce it without the Zoloft anymore? Um, so I'm still on it. Like I, I can't really, and functioning, and I can't really imagine being off it. And especially yeah. with like, being isolated in the pandemic and everything like, uh, in talking with my psychiatrist, like that's the worst time to maybe even try to like reduce your dose or anything like that. <laughs> Cause you yeah, know, can you're put, you're, have already put yourself in a predisposed situation where major depressive episode could occur with, you know, very little, very little push or shove or stimulation one way or the other. Um, so that's where I'm at. Um, but when it comes to the—I I I have a, a basic understanding of how, like, the reuptake inhibitors work and how the different sort of neurotransmitters uh, work between the neurons and how, like, the sacs, like, release those neurotransmitters and they get picked up by the other ones. And then there's a bunch of leftover neurotransmitter kind of, like, floating and it gets recycled. But I figure you're probably— more advanced on the chemistry and the, uh, and the receptors than I am. Can you tell me more about it or am I asking you an impossible question?
0: <laughs> no, you could tell me, I can tell you more about it. Um, did you hit the brain structure that you wanted to? Or oh you want to yeah. The, uh,
1: the brain structure is pretty simple. Just that if you simplify it, like, um, the lecture we listened to, uh, the cortex for we've talked about the cortex in our brain episodes but it's sort of uh humans are are have the most evolutionarily advanced cortex of any species and the be- and the uh, sort of highest to our body ratio as far as size and the cortex is really where we've talked about like consciousness exists and awareness exists and all these sort of top down functions where we take our abstract interpretation of the world based upon our senses and then force that information down through the more primitive parts of our brain to to, you know, affect the functionality of our bodies. And um, so we've talked about like the limbic system, and we've talked about you know, the lizard brain parts with the amygdala and stuff. But essentially what um, he talked about in this lecture was that, the cortex is so powerful and the human abstract experience through our senses is so powerful. And like we talked about with David Eagleman and his uh, neuroscience studies about how all of our sensory input and our, all of our experience is an illusion that is happening in our brains. So the cortex is so powerful enough to give us this illusion that we interact with every day that works. But it's also powerful enough to then take that illusion and then drive it down through all of the limbic system and down to our primitive lizard brain. And if our cortex is is firing such that it's perceiving threats and perceiving anxiety causing situations and perceiving stress and perceiving all these things, it will force those more primitive parts of our brain that usually reacted to that rustle in the rustle in the bushes when we were on the savannah. Oh my God, is that a lion right there? It'll force us to constantly be in a loop of, oh my God, there's a lion behind me all the time. Like, I always think that there's a lion walking behind me. Basically, is the primitive place that your brain is tricked into being. That you're always stuck with this unsettling feeling that everything is about to go wrong and all of the worst things are sneaking up on you. Mm-hmm. And um, so that just sort of that structure of the brain about how the more evolved, more recently developed abstract parts can force the, the primitive parts, more long lasting, longer history and evolution parts of our brain to believe that we're in these yeah. desperate situations is pretty amazing.
0: It's, it's great how he describes it, that the cortex is great for abstract thought. And as he describes, you know, the cortex, you see something and you can parse it out between punk rock or Beethoven. Mm -hmm. Like that's the abstract concept in your cortex. So it's able to take that, then talk down to your limbic system, which controls like emotions, which is typically communicating a lot with the basal ganglia, the amygdala and everything. Because you, you know, um, say you're an elk and you hear a rustle in the bush, it is advantageous for your cognition to understand there's a rustle in the bush and immediately talk to your emotions to get fearful and communicate to the basal ganglia to switch on the fight or flight, Mm -hmm. which the basal ganglia... measure and maintain heart rate and glucose level and all that kind of stuff gives you, you that hyper things. awareness. Yeah. You need those things switched around whether you're digesting, uh you know, it's rest or diet rest and digest or fight or flight. Um, you need those things changed in a way. And the emotions uh that also communicate with that as far as fear or Anger, rage, whatever it is, communicates well to that cortex of, say, you know, a mammal. These things operate in lizards a little bit. You know, it's it's all through life uh, that has especially a type of brain or some neurochemistry. Even fruit flies. Even fruit flies. So the neurochemistry part of it is really interesting because, as you are saying, the structure, uh, we've got one part of the brain, one neuron going and it sticks out a stick like a Q-tip and that fits in kind of a socket of the receiving brain neuron. Mm -hmm. And the way that these neurotransmitters operate is they're all hanging out at the end of that Q-tip in these, uh, little vesicles, uh, like these little spheres inside of that cell. Um, Whenever the excited thing comes along, you know, we've spoken about before, especially in our senses episode, with the movement of electricity through a nerve cell, once that comes along, it stimulates the binding of that vesicle to the cell wall, and that then, the, the vesicle is made out of the exact same material, a lipid bilayer, as the cell, like, not wall, cell membrane, mm-hmm. um, And it then like kind of morphs out and pushes all of those neurotransmitters into this empty space between the Q-tip and the receiving pocket. The neurotransmitters, some of them go and touch a receptor and they bind to a receptor site and that sends a signal on to the next cell. But there's a, you know, we've spoken about this, all of these proteins and everything, It's like a lock and a key and it's essentially just floating and based off of charges and really chance they touch the receptor they need to. So you have to have a whole lot of receptors or a a whole lot of neurotransmitters to send a signal Mm -hmm. to touch just a few receptors. So you got a bunch of neurotransmitters floating around in this space and they either get sucked out and essentially thrown away through your cerebrospinal fluid. And then, um, you know, when you go to the bathroom, everything gets gone. Or it's uh, recycled, and that's the reuptake. So the SSRIs work on this reuptake process. And something that they believe neurochemically is going on in depression is there's not enough serotonin or it's being taken up too fast or something like that there's you know different yeah. theories you
1: either you either aren't transmitting enough serotonin or you have maybe not enough receptors to receive all the serotonin that you're releasing or maybe your reuptake part is sucking all the receptors out way or, or sucking all the neurotransmitters out before they can be received by the receptors mm-hmm.
0: In the reuptake part, it's going back into that Q-tip. So, mm-hmm. uh, so the SSRIs block the proteins that help the serotonin go back into the original cell that was sending the signal. Um, but you've got a bunch of different neurotransmitters that really operate. Uh, you've, I mean, there's potentially hundreds of neurotransmitters, mm-hmm. but the ones that are have uh, centrally been studied in relation to depression are norepinephrine. Um, another name for it is noradrenaline. They used to call it noradrenaline in the US. Uh, epinephrine is the name for adrenaline in like the UK and everything. So they eventually started switching over. That's why like an EpiPen is an epinephrine pen. Yeah, yeah. And but and adrenaline,
1: adrenaline has like a, it's some, there's something also with the context of adrenaline. It's too generalized. Some, something like yeah, that. Yeah.
0: Um, so you got norepinephrine, you have serotonin, as we've spoken about, you have dopamine, um, and you also have substance P and these are all very interesting. Like the way that, you know, these things get studied is they're like, well, uh, we gave a bunch of drugs to people and they became depressed or, well, we gave a bunch of rats this drug, and they became depressed.
1: Or like most things, like you find people that have other disorders that like mm-hmm. cause way too much serotonin in their brains, and you see what's happening with them if they have too much. Or you find other people that have other disorders that have like no no dopamine. And you see what's happening with them, and you're like, "Oh man, if that person got that illness that caused them to not make dopamine anymore, and now they're really depressed." So maybe it has something to do with dopamine. Maybe we, you know, like, like many research research things that we've talked about, you study the people that are on the edges and the extreme cases that have these very, um, you know, unique diseases that cause many disorders throughout them and then you can kind of be like oh look this is what it looks like when a person is deficient of all these things
0: (laughs) yeah it's i mean and then you can also look at drugs like uh you know heroin operates on the dopamine pathway and that's why heroin is different than mdma which operates on the serotonin pathway Mm. so you can see there's these differences in how they operate um but essentially, I think the way that depression was studied, uh, early in the 50s, they sort of started seeing what norepinephrine did. They understood that it was sort of this, like, well, at the time, they understood that it was something to do with, like, this pleasure um, pathway. And they found a way to stick, like, little things down in rats and... Um, and give them, like, a signal to stimulate norepinephrine. And the thing with these rat studies is they found that it was better than food, it was better than sex, and it was better than if they had gotten this rat addicted to any drug and it was going through withdrawals. Stimulating norepinephrine was better than choosing the drug Mm -hmm. to go back on
1: so so much to the point where if the the rats were trained to like hit a hit a button and they would get a dose of norepinephrine that the the rats would just continue hitting the button until they killed themselves
0: right yeah <laughs> they would literally work themselves to they death they would
1: pleasure <laughs> themselves to death
0: and so they they understood what norepinephrine did on a very basic level then in the early 60s they came up with Uh, some drugs there were moa inhibitors Um, and the moa inhibitors inhibit the enzyme from breaking down norepinephrine which is that that trash Mm -hmm. uh, method instead of the reuptake method so they stopped it from being broken down and so that it would just stay in that gap longer and found that that caused people's depression to go away Um, so they started to hypothesize, oh, okay, depression is related to norepinephrine. Um, then they developed some drugs in the late sixties that inhibited the reuptake of norepinephrine. Same thing. Uh, people stopped having this, you know, depressive episodes and everything like that. So they came up with the norepinephrine hypothesis in the sixties, um, The problem, though, that they started running into, as you've already alluded to, is when you stimulate norepinephrine, um, you immediately get this sort of pleasure response. Um, The drugs were stimulating norepinephrine, you know, chemically, but it was taking weeks for people to get over their depression, so the time scale was totally off. Mm-hmm. They were thinking it should work instantly. These drugs within one hour cause the norepinephrine to levels to heighten. So why aren't people losing depression in one hour? Um, so they found through all of this that dopamine also works on this pleasure pathway. And then they discovered that SSRIs relieve depression in people. Uh, So you get serotonin working on the same pathway. So then they revisit and they figure out that all of these neurotransmitters relate somewhat, this is the modern understanding, to different aspects of depression. But it's not all depression. The norepinephrine relates to a symptom which is psychomotor retardation, which is, the, as the professor describes it, um, having psychomotor retardation is such that moving and even thinking is exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't get out is, of bed.
1: You literally cannot get out of bed.
0: Yeah, it is your brain essentially making your arms. It's not like so heavy that like uh, you're like, well, if I just, you know, really whip my arm over, I'll get out. It is It is exhausting to even consider Doing that. It's exhausting to do anything. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, you need to do laundry. And he describes, which I related to (laughs) quite well, if he's like, well, I got to do laundry, but that means I have to find the laundry basket. Then I got to carry it to the laundry room. And I'm low on detergent. So I actually now need to go to the store to get detergent. And it's just so much to do, such a simple task that it's impossible to do. Mm -hmm. And he describes, If somebody is exhibiting this symptom so bad that has depression, they're hospitalized, they're, like, not even a suicide risk because they can't will themselves to do it. Yeah, the
1: thought of cutting your wrist is too exhausting. The thought of finding a gun, God. Right. (laughs) Like, the thought of just procuring the method at which to kill yourself is really tough.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, But he did say these people are put on suicide risk as soon as they start getting better. So this is kind of the one of the things with depression, too, that I think people who don't experience it get really confused with is they're like, I don't know why so and so killed themselves. They were seeking treatment. They were getting better. Mm -hmm. And it's because once you start getting better, you're losing that psychomotor retardation, but you still don't feel great. So then you have a tiny dip and that's enough to allow somebody to, you know, slip who's not watching them. Yeah. Um,
1: you, you and, actually you actually have the energy to go ahead go ahead and do it. And and yeah. it in beyond just the motor function, you have the energy to think about the thoughts that mm-hmm. would happen. Like one my wife's life would be so much better if I wasn't around burdening her with all this stuff. Like, I can actually have that thought now. I, I, before, you, you know, like, uh, the, the motor retardation stuff, it, the way that I describe it when I was having it was, like, the worst hangover you've ever had in your life, that real nausea feeling where, like, the only place you can feel good is if you're laying on the hard, cold ground in the fetal position— And you're so nauseated that you can't even like think a thought Like you might puke if you just thought like the simplest thought. So you don't even think about anything like you're just all you're thinking about one is, oh my God, just stay in the fetal position. Just stay in the fetal position. Like that is the only thought you can have. So once that's alleviated like a blanket off you, then you really start having all these thoughts that you think are like honorable but they're still very influenced by your depressed state you start to Mm -hmm. think like oh man i'd be doing all the people in my life a favor if i just killed myself and then you do it like that that's where that's where it is it's not like uh it's not like ah finally someone uncuffed my hands so i can you know pull this trigger it's it's really the thoughts like the thoughts yeah. that you weren't able to have before, but they're still incredibly dark thoughts. And you're like, oh my God, these are the biggest, most revelatory things I've ever thought in my life. Cause you haven't thought about anything for like a month. <laughs> and you're like, it's like these aha moments are all hitting you, but they're all about like offing yourself.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a very eureka moment. Um, I certainly recall like, uh, you know, you hear people say like, Obviously the people who are uh, you know, suicide hotline people or whatever, they ask, Do you have a plan? And I remember when I was like real bad, it's like a plan, like singular, yeah. like <laughs> I've got a plan depending on where I am <laughs> in the house or on the road. Like I know where they're doing construction and they got a big pile of rocks right off the side of the freeway. Like, you know, it's it's something that that's the weird thing about it is you're like, you you, those like, experiences of thinking, of those things is so much that you're like, this is kind of smart. Like I yeah I I I know exactly like, how and when if I you know get to the point where I feel like I need to like you know it's you're finally it's, back it's, to the
1: problem solving brain and the problem right. you're trying to solve is your own existence.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's nuts. Um, You know, uh, not saying anybody is crazy, but that's, you know, colloquialisms, right? Yeah. Um, And then they found uh, dopamine has to do with anhedonia, the ability to feel pleasure, um, which is why everybody on cocaine thinks that they've got such a great idea. Um, (laughs) And It's also uh, why
1: cocaine is like a big, uh, is a big depression causer too. So if you do it long enough, like you... Pretty much are set up for a huge, major depressive episode when you stop.
0: Um, and serotonin has to do with the sense of grief, uh, which you know. So now we know the exact opposite of grief is loving everybody. Um, so it's it's well, sort and the of the guilt. It's, the guilt too, guilt. I think,
1: is the big uh, the the guilt part is the hard part because the grief is real, but no one. Really understands what you're grieving. Like, it, unless you have a very direct relationship with your depressive episode where, like, your wife died and now you've been mourning for two years and you don't, you know, you no longer like take care of yourself or whatever, people can understand, ooh, that's grief. But mm-hmm. the grief from serotonin loss, that it's the same grief but it doesn't have to be that like your spouse died. It's like it can be over lots of things. And the piling on of people sort of of you not really wanting to talk about the grief because people aren't going to understand it and they'll say stuff like like well-meaning, but it'll be a lot of things like, "Oh, why don't you just uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps?" kind of like You know, advice. And that makes you feel worse because then you feel guilty like I'm the only human that can't get over this. What the fuck is wrong with me that I can't get over this? And then on top of that, the guilt then just escalates because now there's all these people in my life that are counting on me and I can't get over this. And they're all saying that I should be able to get over this. But I can't get over this, so now I feel guilty mm-hmm. that I'm letting all them down, and the guilt spiral is the thing that is the toughest thing to come out of, and the guilt is so emotionally, um, vibrant that even when you're months into your SSRI, you know, program and you've been taking the Zoloft and you're showing signs of improvement with your worldview and things like that, like, I still couldn't answer my phone when my dad would call me because there was so much baggage associated just with seeing his name pop up on my phone. And it was, like, guilt-associated. Like, I had not been able to stay on at the engineering firm for the for his entire work life to set him up better for retirement because he was always so bad with money and just all of the things that aren't really my fault but I internalized them as my fault and because I had internalized them during a major depressive episode you hold on to them like just because you take the medication doesn't mean that you let go of those things because that was part of your identity so almost like a weird in this weird egocentric thing you hold on to it cuz like that's who you are like i can't i'm not yeah. me if i don't feel this this debilitating guilt all the time it's 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 fucked up in a lot of ways and that's why i think um it's just it's not going to be a a solution where you just take take a pill and it solves everything but the pills are the thing that gets you in a headspace to where you can actually do the work again to help right. yourself get out of the hole. But with, cause without the pills, you're never, you're just falling. You never get to like, you never like see the bottom of the pit and then start the climb back out. There's the pot, the, the bottom never appears. You just keep falling forever.
0: Hmm. And there's, there's plenty of other things too, like chemically, um, that, while they're important, I kind of want to breeze through because I want to get to the psychology aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's plenty of hormones, too, that are that are related to it. You have, uh, you know, women are nearly twice as likely to experience major depression than men are. And there seems to be a, an, if there's an imbalance in the ratio of estrogen and progesterone, uh that seems to be a trigger for depression because there's um there's i mean there's studies showing that they relate to neurotransmitter receptor count uh rate of reuptake and rate of degradation of neurotransmitters and women's uh depressive episodes do coincide quite often with uh not all the time but pretty you know Statistically relevant number of times towards reproductive cycle. Mm. Um, yeah, like, like
1: postpartum like is a real
0: thing. Postpartum.
1: Like your your brain chemistry and your hormone levels are all out of whack right after you give birth. So the few weeks after giving birth is the most likely time when women will experience a major depressive episode. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think um, the, the other correlation was menopause. Like that yeah, other menopause. time when your hormones are... are so unaligned that um, that's the other time where you're more likely as a woman to have a major depressive episode.
0: Mm -hmm. And just around like a time of period can also be uh, a cause for depression. So it's female hormones are, while very important, it's like, you know, we're essentially just saying they can also cause depression. Same with like uh, stress hormones. Um, The professor specifically studies glucocorticoids Uh, and studies them in primates and figures out, like, stress levels and stuff. But, um, you know, it's all of these things tend to relate to depression. Uh, And, interestingly, this stress hormone glucocorticoids like cortisol, about 50% of major depressives have elevated levels of glucocorticoids. So thyroid hormones are also... Related. But I think as you're describing like the symptom, that's where we can start to get into like the psychology of it mm-hmm. and the psychological perspective. Uh, grief is it seems to be kind of like the original thing that people started recognizing depression is something else. Um, mm-hmm. Like especially when as he spoke about Freud, I didn't look into a ton of other psychology because I'm, I'm a biologist, <laughs> and, uh, they tend to hate biologists and don't give biology much credit for things um, in written papers that are peer reviewed, so that's, that's great, that's fun. Um, but Freud himself was really relating to why can people mourn and have grief over the loss of a loved one but then come out, and other people can just fall into this pit and not get any better. And I think as you're describing the grief aspect, that's like the perfect perspective on depression from the psychological aspect. It's that, um, and Freud thought of these ideas too, that you have all of these mixed emotions and you have a lot of baggage with everything Mm -hmm. in your life. You can have, you know, you have a good job that also means you have fear at that job of losing it yeah, um, or getting demoted or whatever.
1: The added responsibility of, of now you're responsible for the livelihood of these people that are your subordinates because you got a promotion. And if you don't pull through, then these guys don't get a paycheck anymore type of thing,
0: too. Yeah. Um You know, we can tie this all back to capitalism if you want. But the... <laughs> the thing about having all of these mixed feelings is it seems to be that uh non-depressive people when they have a period of mourning if they lose a loved one or lose the ability uh to like get a job or something like that like lose a job or whatever um they can focus on the sadness for losing it and the love that they had for the thing you can focus on these two aspects whereas someone with depression focuses on the love the hate the disagreements within with that loved one the failures that you caused the failures that person caused you the successes you had together the regret the pain the delight all of those things you focus on while also focusing on I'll never be able to experience those good things again and I'll never be able to correct those bad things. Mm-hmm. So it's this this feeling of guilt that mixes in with all of those things that as you're describing feeling guilty for like your your dad's own um you know financial uh outlook or whatever mm-hmm. that's not really your responsibility but you feel guilty because all of that all of those feelings are mixed up. Yeah. Um, And you didn't even, like, that's the thing with depression. You, you know, weren't losing your dad at that time. It was all mental. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So
1: it's, he, uh, the the professor also talked about, I I was watching a more recent uh, interview with him and he talked about his own personal past and I thought that this, his example of his personal life put put this sort of psychological aspect together. Even though he is, like, strident for biology and we're going to figure out this neurochemistry and we're going to figure out all this stuff, his experience was he was raised in uh, incredibly strident religious tradition. Mm-hmm. And at 13 years old, uh, you know, he they were having the conversation about free will and um you know whether you can go to heaven and how forgiveness works and that caused him to have like an existential crisis because if god's the one who planned everything and sort of pre the way everything's going to go how can he hold me responsible for things that he already pre-planned for me to do that wouldn't he would then consider bad. So do I have free will or don't I have free will? You know, all of that stuff. Yeah. And he eventually woke up uh, one night, uh, 13 years old, and just was like, ah, oh, I get it. There's not a God. Ah, oh, I get it. There's no free will. And that caused him his first major depressive episode. And the psychology of that being that he was grieving the loss of the mythology. And we are so comforted as human beings by our myths, by our traditions, by the things that we have decided that this is the way it's always been for thousands of years and to maintain our peace of mind, we're going to maintain that belief system. Um, That... When we're absent that, when we realize that all of those were just a bunch of myths and the traditions didn't actually mean anything, uh, and there's no real purpose, there's no like, there's no meaning to any of this. Um, when we realize that that is so damaging to our psyche, especially if we've been raised in a tradition that this is supposed to be the thing that provides your life meaning, that pr- makes you relevant as a human being. And so you actually grieve you grieve the mythology that you have decided is illogical and irrelevant to existence mm-hmm. and i think you know that is that is where the real psychological aspects of this come on is how you can you can adjust the brain chemistry you can adjust all of the biological imperatives you can uh, give people the environment at which they w- they w- will succeed the most in but if you've tied a bunch of existence to a lot of things that aren't real that aren't true you're going to have a society of individuals that when they come to realize that those things were not true are going to be predisposed to have major depressive episodes. Mm -hmm. Um, So if, you know, we're talking about the prevalence of depression amongst the population and we're talking about, oh man, mental health crises are up in America, especially since COVID-19 and what's the deal with all of these teenagers committing suicide at such a high rate that they've never committed suicide before, and all of this type of stuff. I think his, alleg- his anecdotal story of him being a 13-year-old is very relevant to that conversation. Um, I think if you have a environment, a society that is going through an experience where you are deciding what is real and what is false. What is true? Is there truth? When you're having this all displayed over like a four year period, really of everything calling into question, the nature of reality, you have a lot of people going through these existential crises the same way that he did when he was 13 years old. And, that is going to have a lot of disparaging and different outcomes for different individuals based upon their environmental factors, their predispositions of their genetics, their predispositions based upon the balance of their neurochemistry. That is going to have a lot of adverse effects amongst the society. And then on top of that, you put the entire population in isolation. And there's plenty of studies that show amongst Not just humans, but like mammals and fish and insects and invertebrates, um, that isolation causes depression. Like isolation Mm -hmm. is a one of the number one key things that causes depression. Um, So. I just feel like it's it's the perfect it's the perfect storm <laughs> right now. Yeah, at least that we're living through, and to 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 have this like oh my god, what is going on? Uh, all you got to do is you know kind of just pay a little bit of attention, um, and I think it's kind of obvious.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting that it ties into deaths deaths of despair, um, which, like, I I get. The benefit of looking at deaths from drugs, alcohol, and suicide uh, all in, all together, mm-hmm. um, I get a little skeptical when they're like, nobody would do these things unless they were suffering. Right uh, themselves, it's like, uh, okay. Um,
1: well, I mean, yeah, lots of people. If I would have killed myself four years ago, lots of people would have looked at my situation and been like. That's a pretty cozy, comfy situation he was yeah, in. Yeah. Doesn't seem like he was suffering or in <laughs> very much financially. He was yeah. fine; like everything was fine. Uh, his wife loved him. This is great. I don't know what the problem was.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, I can't remember like when I was really uh, spiraling. Can't remember if it was high school or college. Which again, you know, my brain doesn't remember things probably because (laughs) I've had so many messed up experiences. Um, but no way would anyone have thought I was suffering. So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, but since 2000, uh, deaths of despair have more than doubled among adults without a four-year degree. Um, so you're, You're seeing like this split because deaths have increased for people with a four year degree um, from below 20 to about like 22, uh, 20, I don't know, about 25 um, deaths per Mm 100,000. But you're seeing this split and it ties back into this sort of loneliness aspect or understanding your understanding of the world uh, getting totally, you know, destroyed right in front of like your eyes, yeah. you know, um, it's something that causes stress. And as we've spoken about, causes, stresses are a prerequisite sometimes to developing depression. And the aspect of it that's like very interesting is stressful events are typically um, like the epidemiology of stress is a situation in which the person starts to learn that they don't have control over the situation mm-hmm. and that can be you know for a child very easy to understand if they have a parent die before the age of 10 before they're 10 yeah that's like an immediate you're learning cause and effect relationships and you immediately learn there's some effects that had no cause that you had any control over there's things in the world that happen that are absolutely horrible that you can't do anything about but The strange thing, talking with my sister, who studied psychology, um, those stressors, especially for children, don't have to be death. Mm -hmm. They can be going to a wedding. They can be like you know moving schools. Yeah, anything that causes a person to feel like they don't have control is a stressful uh, a stressor. And it totally makes sense evolutionarily. Um, What during you know caveman times or as a primate do you not have control over? Those are typically bad things, (laughs) you know. Well,
1: even as a kid, if you go through a period of time where your family is pretty poor and you don't, there's like some nights where you don't know if you're gonna get food, or there's some weeks where you're not sure if you're gonna get dinner any nights that week, like. That is enough to to foil the whole construct that your very young mind has developed with the this very um, simplified, rigid understanding of cause and effect reality inside of your experience. Like when you're young and you're just learning the rules, like this is the same period of time when you're a kid and you're like, "Hey, I just learned the rules to this." To, to this sport and these kids aren't playing by the rules. So I'm going to go tell all the parents that these kids are doing it all wrong because now I've decided that rules mean something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it just takes a few experiences to let you realize that there's no free will. There's no fucking control. What <laughs> every, everything that you've been taught so far was all bullshit.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's it's interesting that we've now got a society that everybody is coming to the conclusion that everything they've been told about the system is uh, just, it is uh, for me, not for thee, you know? Yeah. It is, it, the system benefits a select group of people, you know, as Carlin put it, like, they're all in a club and you aren't, you know? He didn't put it that way. He put it uh, funnier. <laughs> but... <laughs> I forgot the line he said, um, but it's, it's, there is this collective understanding and this individual understanding. Um, but the problem is people don't recognize it it's a massive individual understanding. Mm-hmm. And that's tends to lead to some sort of depression that, people are experiencing all of these things and the problem with depression is you don't think anybody else knows what you're going through um it's just like you can you know that depression exists like the lecture we were watching was from 2009 yeah i don't know when i learned the word depression but it couldn't have been many years before 2009 like it was it was not that big of a topic of course there were you know like zoloft or prozac commercials mm-hmm. but it was something that was so uh different than what i thought i was experiencing um but now we have so many people going through the same things while knowing that depression exists on you know a large part and still not having any way of dealing with it because there aren't alternatives.
1: <laughs> yeah. And that and that's the thing, is that it's why it's not just a uh, personal responsibility issue or a, even a societal issue. Yeah, thing societal experiences can trigger uh, the depressive episodes, but again, this does go back to our evolutionary baggage. This does go back mm-hmm. to our genes. This does go back to our neurochemistry. So it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you could make some sort of utopia land where no one got hurt and no one died and then no one would have depression like depression is a is not a function of having the perfect society it will eradicate it type of thing and that's that's yeah. the other thing that needs to be understood is that it's not just environmental factors this is not a thing that we can we should even necessarily want to wish away I mean, it sucks that we all have to go through with it, but it is our evolutionary story. Like, if we don't have hypersenses of awareness, if we don't have the dendrites in our frontal lobe recess when we're in our fight and flight phase, so that our amygdala takes over our emotional response, um, we don't run away from the pack of lions in the bushes and we just get eaten on the savannah and we probably don't you know we, we don't evolve this far
0: um, we, if we don't feel lonely when we're rejected by a group of people then we die because there's only 50 people in this tribe right and if if we don't have loneliness physically hurt then and try to spur us to change whatever we're doing um, then yeah you you die in the savannah you you do not rejoin the tribe. Yeah. Um, and what's weird from like loneliness studies and stuff, people who have almost a chronic sort of loneliness start to also view things in a distorted way. Mm-hmm. Like you start to see somebody smile as them laughing at you. Yeah. So every, every
1: everything, every connotation is taken in a negative or even as an attack.
0: Yeah. And that could be, you know, you felt lonely because you were trying to do something right. So now you, these are your enemies, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's sort of a way that your brain tricked itself, uh, 200,000 years ago. But yeah, it's, it's weird how this has come along with like humans. Um, and we've only recently started to try and understand it and, more recently seen the American dream start to collapse. So, yeah, um, I guess
1: in summary for me, I think, uh, the best way to wrap it up is the way Sapolsky said that the real way to, you know, get to the other side of this and to really, you know, encapsulate this idea and make it a wrap our arms around the, the majorly depressed people in society, um, is to start to really view depression like you view diabetes. Um, like You would never say that a person is weak-minded or of low moral stature or low character because they have diabetes. You would never tell them, what's wrong with you? Why do you keep taking that insulin stuff? Don't, don't you know that's just making your mind weak? Why can't you just get over it? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. You would never say that about diabetes to anyone. Like That's not the way that you would think about that. So if just think about it, when people tell you that they're going through a tough time with depression, think about it as if they told you that they had diabetes and give them the advice that you would give to a person who just told you was diagnosed with diabetes. <laughs> Don't give them the yeah. advice that uh, your armchair quarterback uh, life coach would tell you on on how on how to make your life better or or how to cheer up and make the most of it or if you know basically lay there and take it as a rape victim I, the, the those those types of advice are are not good for anyone
0: yeah and i swear to god if anybody tries to tell someone that they should just practice mindfulness <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, yeah mindfulness is a whole other trip but yeah I don't know if mindfulness is just a is a buzzword that all all the gurus picked up, you know, in the last five years, Um, because I don't think anyone who who says mindfulness actually means like introspective contemplation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's definitely. (laughs) Wait, you're telling me that somebody rewrapped an ancient uh, process and whitewashed it so (laughs) that look
1: Buddhism in five minutes. (laughs) <laughs>
0: right. Yeah, which is—that's a whole other thing. I was listening to a philosopher talk about how Buddhism is—is uh, is, uh, Hinduism without the like, like myth- mythological without, the, without the floaty god creature. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was kind of interesting. So yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's a whole other section on uh, genetics that deals with depression, um, but that. You can look at my notes for the correct answer (laughs) to that one. Uh, Don't try looking it up because depending on if you're looking at a, a psychology website or paper or not, they will tell you how stupid it is to imagine that genes have anything to do with it.
1: Um, (laughs) Yeah. It's tough. You know, replication is tough with these big, uh, sort of studies that are studying behavior over 30 years and large populations, uh, You know, there was the one study in New Zealand that he referenced that was like 17,000 individuals and a bunch of psychologist studies that have tried to replicate it, but with like sample sizes of like 200 individuals have not been able to replicate it. But there's been a few, uh, one in 2010 and one in 2016, that both found the same um, correlative effects between the uh, short allele Uh, genes for serotonin versus the long allele genes for serotonin as basically if you have the short allele you if if certain things happen to you if enough traumatic events happen to you especially in early childhood development you have a much higher likelihood of having a major depressive episode in your life than if you had the long allele version of the serotonin gene
0: Uh, Mm -hmm. yeah and it was Like uh, the thing with stressors is one stressor doesn't make anybody more likely to develop depression, but around the fourth or fifth major stressor does. Um, But the people with the bad allele are 30 times more likely to develop depression Mm -hmm. based off of that original study. And it's not it's the weird thing is it's not even like the the gene that regulates the reuptake pumping of serotonin. It's the gene before that that regulates how that gene is processed. Um, So it's like a weird, weird one. It was funny. I was talking with Miho about it too, though. And uh, she was, you know, feeling bad for people uh, because she's a human. She has emotions, (laughs) which is, you know, nice that I get to at least witness. And um, she was, like, looking at me as if, like, oh, do you have the bad allele? (laughs) and I was like you know I had enough horrible things happen when I was a kid that I don't even know if I do <laughs> so
1: there 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 was a stack of enough things
0: <laughs> yeah um so it's it's interesting the genetics side of it um as he says genetics are about vulnerability not inevitability mm-hmm. and that goes the opposite way you know you cannot have the gene you can take a 23 and me and not have that gene pop up and probably, you know, there's a chance you still have depression if you feel these things. So uh, talking about it openly is one thing that certainly helps um, at least get people in the right direction. So I guess that's where I'll leave it. Yeah,
1: good job, Eric. I think we did some good destigmatizing.
0: There we go. We're the first podcast to talk about depression, I bet. Well, hopefully we'll win an award. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we can win the freedom from religion foundation award that uh dr sapolsky won there we the go emperor has no clothes <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's the one i'm shooting for all right until yeah. next week